Let's continue our worship by the reading of Luke 1, 46 through 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on, my hum- on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from the thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. I'm thankful that you are with us today, online or in person. Uh, Before we get cranked, I just want to remind you, you, uh, next week is our family candlelight service, which means we will not have service in the morning uh, next Sunday. Instead, we'll have service at 6 p.m. that evening. Um, So just sleep in on me. You're welcome. Uh, We're going to sing Christmas hymns as a family. We're going to read scripture. We're going to light the Christ candle. Uh, It's probably my favorite service of the year. We're going to eat Christmas cookies and drink cider afterward. Um, So I hope you can make it. Uh, This season of Advent, we've been meditating on um, the biblical theme of light and darkness. And what we've said is that uh, darkness is this universal metaphor uh, that transcends and communicates to people from every time and every place uh, throughout history. It doesn't matter what language you speak or what century you live in. Darkness represents evil and ignorance and suffering and the unknown and danger. And we've really uh, been focusing on the darkness. It's been a, a really fun time, right? Uh, but the reason we've been kind of pressing on our conception of what the Bible means when it says darkness is because if we are underwhelmed by what the darkness has done to us, we will be as equally underwhelmed uh, when light is offered to us on Christmas morning, right? That's the whole thing. Or we can say it this way. If darkness is not a problem for you, that means, that means you've, you've adjusted to it, right? We didn't say his name last week, but Gollum, yeah? adjusted to the darkness, Darkness wasn't really a problem for him because he had adjusted to it. He'd become a creature who dwelt in the darkness. And when creatures begin to dwell in the darkness, you know what they begin to do? They begin to use darkness to their advantage. You know, you can hide in the dark. You can get away with stuff in the dark. No one sees what you do in the dark. And what we just sat with last week is for some of us, darkness isn't a problem. In fact, we quite enjoy it. And we've learned to leverage the darkness to satisfy our desires. If you don't think darkness is a problem, then you won't give two cares when the light comes. That's what Christmas morning is celebrating. Just to keep pressing, because we're already just coming out the gate hot this morning. Imagine rejoicing that all of your flaws are being revealed. 
That's part of what it means to step into the light. It means to step into being exposed. And I hope that as you celebrate Christmas morning, I've, 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 <laughs> I got you a little bit there. And, and you'll think about Christmas a little, with a little more nuance and a little more depth in what we're actually celebrating, that the light has come. And the question we've been asking ourselves over and over and over again is, is that good news to you? Do you want to be the kind of person who dwells in the light? Do you want to be amongst a people who strive for honesty and authenticity and vulnerability? Right? So last week we just sat with what John, what on earth he could have meant in John 3 when he called the light a judgment. Right? So we can't go back through it, but go back and listen if you missed it. So today, we read from two passages today. The angel... Uh, the beginning of the service, the angels uh, revealing God's plan to shepherds, uh, right? The Messiah is going to be born in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, that whole thing, right? And the second scripture we read today was Mary's, what we call a magnificant, what it's called in scripture. Uh, it's her song. It's her song uh, after uh, her cousin Elizabeth sees her and greets her, and uh, Elizabeth confirms uh, the divine plan without being told any details, Soon as she sees Mary, she, she starts, it says she's filled with the Holy Spirit and just launches into the whole deal and just tells the whole plan. And Mary hadn't told her anything yet. And after that's affirmed for Mary, which by the way, Mary was fleeing to the countryside to her, to her if you read the whole context, she went with haste to the countryside. Um, uh, and as, she, as it is affirmed through her cousin Mary, she just bursts out into this song of praise, right? So we're going to sit with these two things and what it means uh, for how we celebrate Christmas and what Christmas means to us. So number one, the shepherds. Now, if you grew up in church, you, you might know where we're going to go here. Uh, today, we have a very sentimental understanding of shepherds in the Bible, okay? So we see shepherds through kind of pastel, you know, <laughs> we see the felt board shepherds, you know. Uh, David was a shepherd in the Bible. Jesus called himself the good shepherd. In the Psalms, God calls himself the shepherd that makes us lie down in Psalm 23, right? So this is very fascinating. Despite all of the biblical analogy, analogies of shepherds being this kind of symbol for God himself, uh, shepherds in the ancient world were poor, nomadic, socially frowned upon, bottom-rung society-type people um, for lots of reasons. And number one, they were uneducated and dirty. They hung out with animals all the time. They did not have an education. In fact, all of the required practical duties of shepherding meant they were continually ceremonially unclean. Now, that doesn't have any ramifications for us, but what it meant for them is they were not, they were not able to go to church. They couldn't even go in the temple and worship. They were outcast, rejects, right? Some passages from the Jewish oral law, the Mishnah, uh, describe shepherds as incompetent. <laughs> this, is their moral, this is their oral law, right? And it says, no one should ever feel obligated to rescue a shepherd Falling, fall, have, having fallen into a pit. Yeah, in the Mishnah, right? It seems also the ancient world, all of the ancient world disliked shepherds. In Genesis 46, 34, it tells us, 46, 34, it tells us that the Egyptians thought all shepherds were detestable, okay? Uh, they're nomadic, which means they go from land to land, often stealing, often living off the land of other people, and often the poorest of the, often the, poorest of the poor. And of course, there's a profound irony here, right? 
that God would choose to make his announcement first to shepherds. Not only does God reveal his plan to shepherds first, but it's the dirty shepherds, if you were with us at the beginning, that are the first evangelists in the Bible, in the New Testament. They, they are the ones who run through the town telling others about the Messiah first. It's remarkable that the first one to tell others, which of course, everyone would have easily dismissed them as crazy and probably did. Wide-eyed, dirty shepherds running through the town saying, the the Messiah is here, the Messiah is here, it's a baby down the street, right? Most people more than likely said, you're crazy, don't touch me, get away from me, right? And so what we see here in scripture is it seems that God likes to use people that are easily dismissed and ignored by society. He just likes to do that. And today, we're still tempted to judge a message, not by the content of the message, but the charisma and charm of the messenger. Yeah? All right, how many people dismiss the Bible because it doesn't seem spectacular? Hmm? Or a sermon because the preacher lacks the dramatic or something like that, right? How was church? He was boring. Hmm, okay. But did he say anything true? I don't know. It was boring, right? God seems to think his people will be able to hear truth no matter what the vehicle. Not only that, he seems to delight in using easily ignored, surprising sources to be his mouthpiece. If you've read the Old Testament, it's a little alarming because you realize most of the prophets are are just indicting the entire society. They're railing against the Jews. They're indicting the kings. When you realize a lot of the Old Testament is a minority report. It's just a few people that are standing up, being the mouthpiece of God saying, this is, this is going south, y'all. It's really remarkable that it got in there to me, if, if, you, if you read the deal. I, I don't know if you've seen uh, The Chosen, this uh, series, episode series about the life of Jesus. They have a short called uh, The Shepherd. We almost watched it because it's so good. Um, they present a, a very historically accurate portrayal of shepherds um, in, in their little short. You can download an app. I don't know if you've not heard of this. Just, just go in the app store, look for The Chosen, and then you can watch all the stuff. You can like cast it to your screen. There's one called The Shepherd. And, and in the, in the uh, story that they portray, when the shepherds come to see Mary and Joseph, uh, they, they kind of take some imaginative creative license and the shepherds ask to hold Jesus, which I suppose makes sense. And Joseph hands Jesus to the outcast of the outcasts. It's really a, it's a, a great moment, right? He, Joseph offers him to, the, to the, the cripple amongst the shepherds, right? And while it's totally extra biblical and imaginary, it is totally in line with, I think, what Luke wants us to see about God, that when the light comes, he comes in a way that is easily ignored. And he comes first to the people who are easily ignored. It's, it's remarkable, really. And what about Mary's song? Mary bursts into the overflow, overflow of place, praise and explodes out of her, like we said, after she uh, encounters her cousin. And um, in a word, if you were to look at the song of Mary, the Magnificat, what it's called, right? Uh, you would say, what is she so jacked about? Like, what's happening? What's lining up in her mind that she's going to sing this song? I mean, in a word, it's God, but she's specific about it. She says in her song, the mighty one has looked on me in my lowliness. That's what, that's in my humility, right? Now, this doesn't land on us today, uh, but it is remarkable that this is even in the Bible, 
Because at that time, in that culture, um, women could not even testify in court. Like if they were going to gather people to prove something happened, they'd be like, get out of here, Mary. Go find your dad. We'll listen to him, right? Like they couldn't even verify something was true in a court of law. I mean, just think about the past 100 years, how much women, women's rights has progressed. Okay, now just minus 2,000 years from that, okay? Women were degraded, belittled to the point of being treated like property, even by their own family. And here we have the words of a woman in the Bible. If you're going to, listen, listen, I mean, come, if you're going to launch a religion, all right, to grasp power and control people like many accuse Christianity of doing, you would never make up stuff like this and put it in the Bible, especially not in first century Palestine, right? You would not even include a woman's testimony. It was worthless, right? And if you were going to include a woman's testimony, you'd find a respectable, well-established lady in the community that everyone listened to. Theologians estimate Mary was an early teen, hmm? a little girl, if there is a picture of a cultural nobody, someone with no voice, like nothing to add, no real value, it's Mary. And what's worse, y'all, is she's being swept up in a scandal right now. You know the scandal? She's pregnant out of wedlock. Okay, we're not talking about like dirty looks at Walmart. You're pregnant out of wedlock in the first century in, in the Jewish culture. You're dragged out of your home and stoned to death. People throw rocks at you until you die. It was an abomination, right? So she's being dragged up uh, in this, I mean, we think of, you know, the whole like, God, you know, God wants to bless you. He does. But what if the blessing of God, what if the process of that blessing equates the ruining of your, of your reputation? That's what's Mary's story. <laughs> That's bizarre, right? So she's getting wrapped up in this scandal, right? If she had any respectability on the playground, because remember, she's like early teens, right? It's gone now. In fact, the Bible tells us that Joseph is going to dismiss her quietly after the baby's born. Like his plan, it was like, dude, I'm just going to drop this girl because I don't know what's happening. I mean, the angel sets him straight eventually, right? But he was pro he, his plan was to get out, right? She was certainly considering all of these things in her heart right? The ruining of her character. She probably thought, man, life's over. I'm so, like, Joseph's probably not going to stick around, right? All these thoughts had to be flooding over her. And verse 39 tells us she's literally fleeing to the countryside. With, she's going with haste to her cousin's house in the country, probably to lay low until this stuff, you know, goes over. And when God's plan is affirmed to her <clears throat> through her cousin, okay, all, this is very interesting. I love how this works. All of her fears and her trepidations and her social cultural standing, it, it falls into place. Have you ever seen um, like those like 3D, uh, not 3D, it is three-dimensional, but it's those art pieces that it's like hung things, you know? And if you look at it from the side, it's like it's a bunch of hung stuff. But then when you, when you go right there, then all of it like lines up. And, it, and then all of a sudden you can like read it. So this is happening with Mary right now. When Elizabeth affirms it, everything lines up. Her social standing, the goodness of God, God's divine plan, and, and it's saying that God is doing something and he is choosing the lowly and the nobodies and the outcasts to do it. And this is how we know this. This is why we know all of that's lining up, the content of her song. Her song says this, I think we have it. He has shown strength with his, with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's Filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Y'all, everything she is rejoicing in is a reversal of how the world works. 
Hmm? Rich people are the ones who walk away with their hands full, not poor people, right? Mighty people sit on thrones, and they're exalted, not humble people of lowly positions, right? Y'all, it's a reversal of business as usual from last week, if you were with us. See, but yeah, business as usual, the proud, the confident, the aggressive, and the violent sit on thrones. Business as usual is Nietzschean dominance, Darwinian survival, hmm? right? And the oppression of the weak by the strong. That's business as usual, y'all. It's when the poor walk away empty-handed and the rich hoard to themselves. And Mary is overwhelmed in this moment as she's realizing right now God is reversing the darkness. And he isn't doing it through the accomplished and the powerful. He isn't doing it through the shakers and the mover and the influencers, God help us. He's doing it through uh, nobodies, through losers, through the weak and the feeble. She's singing. She's singing because she's seeing. She is singing because she's seeing how God chooses to accomplish his good purpose in the earth to redeem and restore and to heal, right? And what is it? Well, it's God's bigness meeting her smallness. And that results in a song of praise. God's bigness meeting her smallness. You know, Jesus actually sang a very similar song in Luke 10, 21. After a large group of his disciples returned to him, freaking out because the demons are submitting to them in his name, right? The disciples themselves, not exactly creme de la creme. Think of the kind of people, y'all, that get swept up in spiritual cult movements, right? When some dude comes in town, they're like, yeah, follow this guy. You're like, dude, go back to work, man. What are you doing, right? Most of them, most of the disciples, blue collar day laborers and not even good ones, Every time you find the disciples, they're either mending their nets or not catching fish, right? (laughs) Like they are, they're not the creme de la creme. The the disciples, y'all, made up of like, okay, not good fishers, Benedict Arnolds and zealots, like a bunch of misfits, right? So when these guys come back, like having seen the power of God at their hand, right? What were they doing? What were they doing? They were extending the kingdom of God at that moment, right? And when they come back, when the bigness of God met the smallness of the disciples, Jesus says, it says he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children, babies. Yes, for such was your gracious will. Jesus is singing the same song of Mary. He's praising the confounding and surprising way in which God longs to heal the world, right? It's fascinating, actually. Last week, we read that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. That word, katalambano, it means understand or grasp, right? That same word is used in Acts 14 when Peter and John are standing before all of the high priests and the elders, right? And it says the high priests and the elders, go to Acts 14, right? It says the high priests and the elders marveled at the confidence of these dudes because they, katalambanoed, they were uneducated men. They grasped it, right? So first of all, I love that just by looking at these suckers, they're like, yeah, these guys didn't go to school, right? But secondly, they marveled. So while they didn't, they didn't understand the light. You know what they could understand? You guys are dummies. <laughs> and it was the grasping of how these men were uneducated that they realized these guys are idiots and God's power is, being, is working through. And, it, they, they were, and they're confounded. Like mouths open, dumbstruck, right? Yo, that's exactly what Mary's song says. It says, it says he scatters the proud in the thoughts of their heart. 
That's the high priest in before Peter and John, right? Mouths open because these blue-collar nobodies are working within the power of God. And that they're the way, so what's that mean? What's that mean? Just stay with it for a second. Their framework, the elders and the priests, why were they shattered by this? Because their framework of how the world worked was God works through us, the mighty, the learned, the strong, the moral right, right? And when the Savior comes, he'll be like us. He'll be a mighty warrior, right? He'll be the military leader, not some Nazarene on a donkey, right? And over and over and over and over and over again, on repeat through the Bible, this theme, right? God says, I will choose the people you have dismissed and condemned as worthless to be my mouthpiece, to show you I am who I am. And I will do my saving work in a way that at the same time lays you low and lifts you up. It's why the religious people missed it. And it's why we miss God working today. Because we look to the super, the spectacular, that's the word. We look to the spectacular and the sensational and the exceptional. And God tends to use the dull, the unimpressive, and the monotonous. Will God use the spectacular? Yeah, read Exodus. <laughs> yeah, he'll use that stuff, right? But when he comes to destroy the hordes of demonic forces mounted for battle, he comes as a baby boy. Hmm? A nobody from a nobody town to a nobody girl and announces it to nobody shepherds. Tim Keller in Hidden Christmas writes this. In ancient times, when the eldest son, ancient times, the eldest son got all the wealth, right? All the inheritance, right? And the second or younger son had no social status. How does God work? Through Abel, not Cain. Through Isaac, not Ishmael. Through Jacob, not Esau. Through Ephraim, not Manasseh. Through David, not his older brothers. And at a time when women were valued for their beauty and fertility, God chooses old Sarah, not young Hagar. He chooses Leah, not Rachel, unattractive Leah, (laughs) whom Jacob doesn't even love. He chooses Rebecca, who can't have children. Hannah, who can't have children. Samson's mother, who can't have children. Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, who can't have children. Over and over and over, God says, I will choose Nazareth, not Jerusalem. I will choose the girl nobody wants. I will choose the boy who everyone has forgotten. Why? Is it just that God likes underdogs? No. He's telling us something about salvation itself. Every other religion And moral philosophy tells you to summon up all your strength and live right as you ought to live, right? Therefore, they appeal to the strong people who can pull it together, strong people who can summon the blood, so to speak, right? Only Jesus says, I've come for the weak. I've come for those who admit they are weak. I will save them not by what they do, but by what I do, right? Throughout Jesus' life, the apostles and disciples keep saying to him, Jesus, when are you going to take power? and save the world. And Jesus keeps saying, you don't understand, I'm going to lose all my power and die to save the world. And the climax of the New Testament is he ascended not to a throne, but to a cross in the gospels, right? The world insists, still reading, it's a long bit. The world insists, if anybody has the answers, they have to come from certain places. They have to come from people with certain credentials. They have to come from people who look a certain way and who have gone to certain schools. But God initially brings his message, not through the Egyptians, not through the Romans or the Assyrians or the Babylonians, but through the Jews. A small nation and a little race that is seldom in power. He defeats Goliath, not with a bigger giant, but with a shepherd boy, one at whom the giant laughed. That's the way God works. How does he talk to Elijah? Through earthquake, wind, fire? No, 
through a still small voice. Okay, so what does all this mean for us? Well, God has always used the socially and even religiously disqualified people for his purposes. Okay, so what's that mean? Well, okay, look right here. Why are you sidestepping God's call on your life? Isn't it because you dismiss yourself as a failure? Isn't it because, like, you have failed, like, really failed over and over and over? Like, isn't there a deep-seated feeling of disqualification that stops you every time you think, oh, yeah, I should obey, and I should serve, and I should step up, right? Isn't there this kind of, but what God is saying through all of this stuff, y'all, is quit elevating your failures over my goodness, because apparently it's not riding on, on your failures or even your successes. Apparently the strength of God isn't mitigated or his plan disturbed by your failures. And apparently he likes to use those things in your life and in other people's lives to make himself known, right? What, is, what God is saying is quit elevating your failures over my goodness, because I will save who I will save, right? Because of Christ, I pronounce you not guilty. Sometimes, y'all, we can get so fixated on our own goodness or lack thereof that we can't receive God's goodness. Hmm? And the whole, this, think about this for one second. The whole like, I'm a nobody, God can't use me, that's actually inverted pride. You know, you know how? Because what you are saying is that your failure is too big for God. Your sin is too great. Your darkness too dark. And you know what the psalmist says about that? Even darkness is as light to him. If Christmas means anything at all, it takes all of our excuses and inadequacies as to why God can't use us or love us, and it burns them to ashes. Christmas means God doesn't say to you, nose to the grindstone, you ninny. (laughs) He doesn't say only the strongest and the brightest and the best in my family, God doesn't say, clamor up to me if you dare. No, he comes down to us. He enters into the mess and into the darkness. This is what the incarnation means, y'all. It means it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. Tim Keller again says this. He says, I don't care if you've been on the paid staff of hell. I don't care what your background is. What's your deep, dark secrets in your past? I don't care how badly you've messed up. If you repent, God will not only accept you and work in your life, but he delights to work through people like you and he's been doing through all of history. Look, it's when people like me and you, as unimpressive as we may be, as spiritually inept as we may be, when we start getting over ourselves and start just obeying, right? Extending God's love to others. When we get over our inadequacies, when we get over all those things and start pushing back darkness with the light, that Jesus rejoices. Do you know why? Because in that moment, we are not leaning on our own strength because we've acknowledged that. We've acknowledged Christmas. We've acknowledged the darkness. We've acknowledged our need for someone to come in and save us from our own darkness. In that moment, when we begin to partner with God in the world and push back the darkness with the light, Jesus rejoices, just like when he did with his disciples, right? And while the world, <laughs> while the world may miss his light, they never miss a chance to point out when someone is beneath them, do they? <laughs> and when we take 
when you will take, willingly take a lower position, when you will willingly humble yourself and serve those around you, the world will begin to marvel. It confounds them. They begin to see glory, but it's not ours, right? They don't see our love. They don't see our strength. They see God at work. And when we can get over ourselves, our strength and our weaknesses, right, we become instruments by which God works in the world. And when we do that, we join in the song. We join in Mary's song. We join in Jesus' song. We join in the song of creation itself. All the heavens are seen. Do you see what happens, y'all, when God rescues through nobodies? You see what happens? When God heals and restores through unexpected, surprising people that you've dismissed, it confounds and it humbles. What exactly does it confound? Well, it confounds uh, how you think the world works. That's what it means when it says scatters the proud in their thoughts or scatters the yeah, proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Because just like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, we often look to our own strength, our own intelligence and power and our own will to save us. But to celebrate Christmas means that our darkness and helplessness was so complete that someone had to come in from the outside to save us. And what is so stunningly marvelous about God, in my opinion, is when he comes as king, when he comes as king, he comes in a way that is easily dismissed and ignored. And, the only, and only those who think they need him find him and enter his kingdom. But this is the interesting thing about the New Testament. We are told that Jesus comes as king twice. The first time he comes in weakness and humility and obscurity. And when he comes again, what scripture says, when it speaks of his second advent, it says he comes with all of his angels, with eyes like fire, feet like bronze, a voice like the roaring of many waterfalls, and a face like the shining of the sun in all of its strength, holding a double-edged sword in one hand and the heavens in the other. <laughs> we live in today. And the question for us, I think, today, as we prepare for Christmas and as Christmas approaches for us, is can we, are you the kind of person who can hear God's voice today, however surprising the source may be? G great example I always love to use. <laughs> can you hear the voice of God through your spouse if you're married? <laughs> or have you dismissed that possibility? For some of you, it's through me. Like, you're like, he's an idiot, right? Can you hear the voice of God through me? <laughs> What about in the Old Testament when the voice of God comes through an animal, a donkey? Like, that's bizarre. Isn't that trying to say something to us? That we don't get the luxury of choosing the vehicle by which God speaks to us. And if you dismiss people because you have considered yourself above them, if you've dismissed people because of their sins or disqualifications, right, whatever that may be in your mind, you may be dismissing the ability to hear the very voice of God. If you can hear his voice, the question then is, will you harden your heart or will you allow his voice to scatter your thoughts of how the world works? Will you allow his voice to rearrange the way that we think things happen in the world and begin to look to the lowly and the humble and the meek in places we're not expecting God to come? Because I think if we will learn to expect God in unexpected places, we might begin to live and think differently about the world itself. Our lives may take on a different character. If on our ride to work or when we get to work, we are looking and expecting God to speak and knowing that he can through unexpected people in unexpected places. This seems to be how God works throughout the Bible. Let's stand and pray.